If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, We've got the latest episode in our series on Britain's greatest prime ministers. Hello and welcome to our new series profiling some of Britain's most important prime ministers. I'm Matt Elton, Deputy Editor of BBC History magazine. It's 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first prime minister. To mark this seismic moment in the nation's political history, we asked a series of leading historians to each nominate the two leaders that they believe achieved most during their time in number 10. Today we'll be hearing from historian and author Andrew Roberts, whose second nomination is Britain's first female Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher is one of those hugely polarising figures who I suspect no one hasn't heard of. But just in case, can you walk us through um, the period she was in power and I suppose some of the headline things about her as leader? Margaret Thatcher was the first female Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. She came to power in 1979 in uh, the middle of a massive uh, domestic crisis, political crisis, an economic crisis. And she stayed in power for 11 and a half years and um, only left when she was forced to resign in uh, November 1990 after having won three general elections consecutively. Um, A pretty extraordinary political achievement. We'll talk about some of those achievements in a minute, but just to rewind to the start of her life, what were her formative early experiences and how did they shape her political viewpoint, I suppose? Her formative political experience really was growing up in Grantham in Lincolnshire, um, the daughter of a lay preacher and a small businessman who very much believed in um, the virtues of hard work and uh, the bourgeois values, uh, really, the free market and so on. She was a chemist at Oxford University, uh, where she joined the Oxford University Conservative Association. And um, really, this combination of, of science and conservatism 
was uh, something that stayed with her, of course, for the rest of her life. And it's interesting, she seems to embody a whole set of different contradictions, almost. So she was conservative with a small c in some senses, but also this hugely radical figure who changed the country uh, enormously. What were the major driving forces, you think, in her political stance? I think the major driving forces with Margaret Thatcher were a um, contempt for socialism, which she thought was bad for the soul of the nation and bad for the individual soul as well. Hatred of communism uh, as well, which she saw just as the um, inevitable, ultimate goal of socialism. She was a British patriot, uh, some would say a nationalist, who loved her country. She was somebody, and therefore believed in in strong defences and so on. And also she believed in the independence and sovereignty of, uh, of Great Britain, she was somebody who had a, uh, a, a really profound moral outlook on uh, politics. She, she really thought that the individual should be the key uh, driving factor in society. All of these things, of course, uh, left people apoplectic with fury and rage at, uh, at Margaret Thatcher. And it seems quite extraordinary, but they're still furious and, uh, and angry and, and resentful about her, even um, many years after her death. And she was, of course, the first female prime minister. What was her route to taking that office and what sort of opposition did she face along the way? Becoming a female MP was, I think, almost as difficult for her as to become a female prime minister. There weren't very many of them. There was an entrenched sense that uh, politics was a was a man's trade, especially in the Conservative Party, which could be conservative with a small c as well as a big one. But once she'd actually got there and had become a cabinet minister, minister for education, really all it took after that was for Edward Heath, who, in my opinion, was one of the worst prime ministers of the 20th century, to make a series of, of egregious blunders. And for nobody else of any great uh, standing to be around to take on Margaret Thatcher. And uh, by that stage, she was not at all, of course, a shoo-in. She still had to, had to win the 1979 general election. But there too, she was enormously helped by her opponent, James Callaghan, and the appalling state of the nation that the trade unions had brought us to by the late 1970s. Do you think there was a public appetite for change in 1979 as well? The public appetite for change in 1979 was not because anybody desperately at the time ideologically wanted to adopt free market or um, free enterprise ideals. It was just so obvious that the alternative had failed and that therefore something radical had to be done to prevent uh, Britain from slipping into a sort of third tier power. I mean, is it possible to overstate the extent to which there were huge challenges waiting when she took office? I think it's almost impossible to overstate the great challenges with uh, the top rate of taxation in the um, 90%. Uh, you have a trade union movement that is in almost complete control of the economy. During the winter of discontent of 1978-79, which I remember well, you had um, the dead not being buried, the uh, rubbish in the streets not being collected, a, uh, a real sense of massive national malaise, um, which is quantifiable. As a result, you know, the British people were, were really looking around for anything that would get them out of this situation. And fortunately, Margaret Thatcher, who had become 
leader in 1975 of the Conservative Party, had a, a what we call now, everybody seems to have to call a roadmap out of where we were to where she wanted us to be. And so that sense of leadership was something that the British people latched onto. And it almost feels like she, by just sheer force of will, dragged Britain into a whole new era. Is, is that fair to say? I think it is fair to say that, yes. Um, I mean, she was lucky in her enemies. She had an opponent in the Argentinian, essentially fascist leader, General Galtieri, who allowed her the opportunity to prove her her, her patriotism and nationalism by um, saving the Falkland Islands and their population for Britain. Um, she was fortunate in the essentially Stalinist approach, at least, of, of her um, opponent in the National Union of Mine Workers. And she was also quite lucky with some of the le- Labour leaders she was up against, Michael Foote and uh, Neil Kinnock. And so it wasn't all just her will and will alone. She was quite, she could be pragmatic, highly pragmatic. In 1981, she stepped back from a clash with the National Union of Mine Workers because she knew that we didn't have the coal stocks necessary to win that clash. She also, of course, came under a lot of attack from people on the liberal wing, the left wing of the Conservative Party, who she dubbed the Wets. And uh, they could, especially at the beginning of her premiership, they could trammel her because there were so many of them. But in successive reshuffles, she got more. She got rid of more and more of them and brought in more and more people who were ideologically closer to her. When I was talking to Dominic Sandbrook for another episode in this series, he said that something about her was she also wasn't afraid to stab the knife in. Do you think that's a fair, a fair comment? I think it's important to remember that all successful prime ministers, uh, was it Enoch Powell who said this about Harold Macmillan, have to be good butchers. Uh, they they have to have the the sort of executioner's axe behind the chair at number 10 to use against uh, people. I mean, even Winston Churchill during the Second World War was able to sack close friends of his like Bob Boothby and Duff Cooper and Roger Keyes and others if they uh, seemed to be a sort of anchor on his ministry. And so when Margaret Thatcher got rid of Wets wholesale, in some of the reshuffles, such as that of, uh, I think, September 1981. That was really just a central part of being a successful Prime Minister. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. When certain people rose up and looked as though they might become a threat to her, she tended to demote them, and, and that doesn't show the confidence necessary. You should be trying all the time to look... To, um, to hand on to somebody who is highly competent. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What what would you say were the, uh, were the key moments in the early years of her leadership? I think the early victories were 
those of denationalization, also known as privatization, where huge sectors of the economy were returned to um, individuals and to um, and to companies as opposed to being held by the state. Then, of course, there was the Falklands War in uh, in April 1982, which was a great success. When the miners did strike uh, between 1984 and 85, that was a a key moment because um, had they been victorious, it would have uh, returned Britain to socialism and brought her down. And of course, that didn't happen either. You have the sale of the council houses back to people who were living in them, um, often at large discounts, which was a, another huge uh, success. And so it was a struggle all the time. She, In that sense, she uh, she did have the kind of, um, I don't know, sort of a Trotskyite aspect to, of, of politics, which was that politics is a constant struggle. You know, it, she did not believe in just managing decline in the way that, say, Harold Macmillan uh, did. She actually thought of politics as a, um, as a endless battle. Which, of course, tires people out, especially after 11 years of it. Um, But nonetheless, it was a battle she had to win. And what would you say uh, were the other traits that made her a good prime minister? I think there's an awful lot of of myth-making about Margaret Thatcher, frankly, about not being a good listener and always sort of shouting people down and not listening to other points of view within the cabinet and so on. I'm not sure any of those are true. If one reads Charles Moore's extraordinary three volume uh, biography of Margaret Thatcher, one of the things that comes through very strongly is actually um, quite how pragmatic she was again and again, and how she did take people's opinions on on board. And if she saw that she was being uh, outnumbered on an issue, she would put it to one side and come back once she'd altered the numbers. But I, I mean, the numbers of people who were supporting her on it. So it really is not true that she was some kind of a fire-breathing harridan from 1979 all the way through to 1990. If she had been, she would not have lasted that long. She wouldn't have won all those elections. She wouldn't have carried a cabinet with her for 11 and a half years, or at least 11 years. They brought her down in the last half. So I think it's it's worthwhile taking into account that she had her own propaganda machine, but one uh, doesn't necessarily have to believe everything uh, in it. It's an interesting point because she is one of those people who's almost entered national myth. Do you think our view of her today is extremely warped from what actually she was like at the time or how she was seen at the time? No, I think she was seen very much as the fire-breathing um, you know, uh, uh, dragon, n- not least because it did on occasion help her to be seen like that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that she was. And uh, the idea that somebody like that could have ever really stayed at the top of politics for quite so long doesn't really take into account what British politics is like. They were not all cowed and terrified of her. These were um, very often distinguished public servants and and, uh, senior politicians who just agreed with her and who thought that the state of Britain was so disastrous in the late 1970s that it really did need a radical overhaul and uh, and that she was the best person to, to sell it to the public. And how was she viewed internationally? Very interestingly, in America, she was loved by Ronald Reagan. They had a fiery interchange occasionally. Of course, they didn't. And so they should have. It turns out that President H.W. Uh, Bush had a much more nuanced 
attitude to Margaret Thatcher. And um, and that's something that comes out very strongly from the Charles Moore book. There's that wonderful quote from President Mitterrand about her having the um, the smile of Marilyn Monroe and the and the eyes of Caligula. Is that, I'm wondering whether or not it might have been the other way around. Or anyway, Caligula and Marilyn Monroe are somehow brought into the same uh, sentence, which can't have happened very often before President Mitterrand said it. And so I think as her premiership went on, and especially when it was clear that the British people were continuing to re-elect her, she had a, a an ever-growing status. And that was why President Gorbachev chose her as the um, way to kind of open up the um, the West to uh, eventual end of, of Soviet communism in Europe. And how about in Europe? How was she seen there? Well, the Germans had a pretty on-off view of her. They 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 understood her strengths, of course, but they also knew that on occasion she could be uh, extremely tough, especially when it came to uh, the European Union and the handbagging that she would give them over the uh, the budget, for example, was something that um, that no German politician was particularly looking forward to. But they did. They, the great thing is that they understood where she was coming from and what she wanted. It was not the kind of relationship with Europe that you get later with John Major or Theresa May, where where actually Brussels isn't quite sure what on earth is going on. And uh, in many ways, and you see this again and again in international relations, it's it's better to have a opponent who you know where they're coming from and what they want than somebody who claims not to be an opponent or isn't an opponent, but is actually so um, indecisive or weak that it doesn't really matter where they're from or what they want. I mean, to what extent is her relationship with the European community, as it was then, the thread that leads to the end of her time as Prime Minister? There were other things as well. Um, the community charge, of course, um, known as the poll tax, was a, an important part of her undoing. But yes, overall, it's it's Britain's relations with Europe. I mean, she's not alone in this, of course. It, they were, there were many heads that rolled because of that in, uh, in, in number 10, you know, almost up to the present day. So it's a it's it's something that that bedeviled British politics for forty years, and yes, she was one of the people who um, was its victim. You mentioned the poll tax. Then were there other major episodes that contributed to this story or flaws that she had as a person? I suppose. Well, again, um, when when one thinks of flaws, it is important for a prime minister to to groom their successor. And uh, in John Major, she handed on to somebody who was not up to the job, frankly. And uh, so I think that's a flaw in, in anyone. When certain people rose up and looked as though they might become a threat to her, she tended to demote them. And, and that doesn't show the confidence necessary. You should be trying all the time to look to, um, to hand on to somebody who is highly competent. Um, so quite a contrast then. Yes, but again, you see it. You see it again and again. Balfour following Salisbury, Eden following Churchill, Brown to an extent following uh, Blair. It's very difficult to be a fag end prime minister. Um, Alec Douglas Hume following Macmillan. If somebody's been in office for a long time and have had triumphs and are successful and so on, however they fall, 
actually, um, it's tremendously difficult to be the person who follows on from them. To what extent does Margaret Thatcher still cast a long shadow over politics today? Oh, I think she casts a huge shadow because she is the archetypal conviction politician. Uh, We see so little of that today. You know, uh, she doesn't really have that many successors in modern politics who say, look, I know this policy is unpopular, but I'm going to follow it because it's right, because I believe in it. It is morally right or economically right or politically right or whatever, but I believe it is right and we're going to do it and I don't care if it's not popular. I don't believe in opinion polls. I don't believe in focus groups. I'm doing this because I think it is the right thing for the country. And what I think a lot of modern politicians don't realise is that actually there are a lot of people, not necessarily in politics, but or see themselves as being on the right or the left or anything, who are desperate for that kind of leadership, a of conviction leadership from somebody who is thoughtful and intelligent and has foresight, and who is therefore a, a natural leader. And um, I think a lot of people would prefer that, would love to see it again, and, uh, and who are casting around in our politics, which has got so much more obsessed with um, with immediate popularity and, and opinion polls and so on, and of course social media as well. By the way, I think she'd have been brilliant on social media. She would have had more Twitter followers than Trump um, <laughs> in his heyday. But, uh, but that kind of politics seems to have gone now, and I think British politics is the sadder for it. Are you surprised by the extent to which she remains a controversial figure? She was always going to be a controversial figure because of issues like the minor strike and the slashing of taxation and uh, so on, you know, uh, and her, her very obvious um, disdain for socialism. You know, they, these are things that were never going to make her loved. But the level to which she still hated on the on the left does surprise me sometimes. But uh, nonetheless, it, it, she wouldn't mind in the slightest. It's a, it's a tribute, as far as she's concerned, I think, to the things that she achieved that she can still cast such a long shadow over British politics when she died in 2013 and hadn't been Prime Minister since 1990. If you could choose two aspects of Margaret Thatcher to contribute to some kind of um, ultimate Prime Minister, which aspects would you pick? I think I would um, definitely pick her her moral certitude, this the sense that uh, she's doing something um, because it's right as opposed to because it's popular. That would be the first thing. And the second thing, actually, is her scientific knowledge. We, especially now, of course, with coronavirus, we do need politicians who have a a, a sense of science. And and she most certainly did. She was the first person to, a major politician, to spot global warming and, and, and actually think about things to do about it. And she was the first person to bring a kind of analytical scientific brain to politics in general. And so I think uh, those two things, the um, the moral strength and the uh, capacity for, for scientific rationalisation would be things that any good prime minister ought to have. Finally, if you could ask her a question, what would you ask her? I'd love, I'd love to ask her whether now, in the light of Brexit, she thinks it was right for her to have campaigned to go into the EEC in 1973, or whether or not she might think uh, that that whole period, that whole near half century of British history was basically a bit of a cul-de-sac, and that had we stayed independent, 
and uh, sovereign back in 1973, that um, a lot of problems would not have uh, bedeviled the Conservative Party and Britain, uh, and of course, ultimately her. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on the weird world of medieval romance. (laughs) 